If you will, take your Bibles this morning, and if you will turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we will probably only make it to verse 21 this morning, but we are entering in to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and we are going to spend some time here in his hometown of Nazareth. Luke four sixteen through 21, there was a common phrase, well, there is a common phrase that became popular in the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. You may have remembered it. You may remember it. There at the end, after all the things that transpired in Oz, Dorothy finally gets to put on the ruby red slippers and clap them together, and she gets to say, there is no place like home. There's no place like home. It was even popular or kind of a popular phrase back in the 1800s with an opera song called Home Sweet Home. Um, It was said that during uh, this line, some people would even stand up and and sing it um, because it speaks of the comfort and the happiness of one's home that it provides them. And so, if you're gone for a long time, if you're away from your home, sometimes this even happens on vacation. We want to get away from home, but we go away, and then what happens? You become homesick, and you just want to get back to your bed and your home, right? So we become homesick. We, there's just something about home that we love and we want to get back to. And so like Dorothy in Wizard of Oz, we, we desire to return to our place of comfort Yet sometimes our return home is not as pleasant as we had thought it would be. And such is the case of Jesus this morning. Jesus will return to Nazareth where he will preach this first sermon in the synagogue that we will see of his Galilean ministry. And he will there, in their place of worship like we are gathered now, reveal to his people, the people who knew him, who watched him grow up. That he is the promised Messiah. And that God has sent him on a mission of salvation. But the people of Nazareth are not pleased. At first it may seem that way, but they're not pleased with this revelation. And in their unbelief, they will reject the Messiah. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this stint that he has here in Nazareth and kind of how it plays out. And this morning, we're going to begin with what I've entitled the Messiah's mission, the Messiah's mission. And the big idea of our text this morning is that the good news of the Messiah and his mission of salvation is revealed to those in his hometown of Nazareth. I'll repeat that. The good news of the Messiah and his mission of salvation is revealed. And so in our passage this morning, we will see this first sermon. And it's amazing that we talked about this last week on the priority of preaching that Jesus was, was a preacher. He was a rabbi, a teacher. And so we talk about the, the importance, uh, me and Trey do, of expositional preaching of taking a text and, and from that text, finding the point and making the point, the, 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 the main point and theme of the sermon. Jesus will do that. Jesus will go back to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 
1, 2, and even Isaiah 58, verse 6, and we'll look at those in a moment. And from there, he's going to preach, he's going to teach. And what I want you to find from this text is, is four metaphors concerning the mission of the Messiah. We're going to see four metaphors. We're going to see poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. Now, I'll repeat those. Poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. Each one of these is a metaphor of the saving work that Christ has come to accomplish in our lives. And so I want to read with you in these verses. Now, before, let's read them first, and then I want to give you some context, and then we're going to jump in. Look with me in chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And we'll read down to verse 21. We read, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant, and He sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say, or He began to teach Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as we dive into this this morning, I want to give you some context. Because as we look at these four metaphors, sometimes what people want to do, what we tend to do is, is we want to look at this from a physical issue. We may want to look at this such as poverty from an economic issue or, or you know, captivity from a social issue or oppression I want you to take notice of verse 21. Take notice with me, verse 21. It says, And he began to say to them today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is ultimately saying to them that he is fulfilling Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. That, that presently he is the fulfillment of this text. And so that's very interesting because if you take this from a physical or economic or social standpoint, then we have a problem. Because are there not blind Christians today? Are there not poor Christians today? Are there not Christians who are in captivity or Christians who are experiencing a broken life, uh, oppression today? Oh, absolutely there are. We know this. And so if we look at this as though the mission of Christ was to come to relieve us of physical poverty and physical oppression, then, then those who have become Christians and he didn't relieve, relieve them of any of that, then we kind of have a problem. Christ either failed at his mission or we've misinterpreted the text. And what I want you to see this morning is, is that what Jesus is doing is he's taking these physical issues, Isaiah was doing, these physical issues, and he's showing us through these lenses here what Christ has come to do for us spiritually. And so this is spiritual, not physical. And so sometimes we want to make that about things. So let's dive into these four metaphors. Notice first with me the metaphor of poverty. He reads, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
Now, we've talked about this in the recent days, in the recent weeks, over the, the issue of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Christ's life. We've talked about that, that, that Jesus, who is completely divine, the Son of God, has emptied himself, and he is willingly not using his own deity, but in his humanity, so he's relying on the power of the Spirit to perform his miracles and to do his ministry. And if you missed any of those sermons, you can kind of go back, you can go back over the previous weeks and look at that. But here we see that this anointing is resulting in him announcing or proclaiming the good news. Well, notice the first thing here. He's proclaiming good news to those who are poor. Now, the Greek word here is tohas, which describes poverty. Now, it, it can at times convey normal just poverty, those who, who just don't have any money. But the most of the time, the, the picture that it conveys is one who is completely and absolutely poor. John MacArthur says it conveys one who is cringing, who is in the corner, who, who is begging because of the shame of their poverty. They're having to beg for money from somebody else or they're begging for their food. This is someone who literally has nothing. They are complete bankrupt and they are in immediate danger because if someone does not provide for them, they will die. Their, their only hope is to beg. Their, their, their only hope, their only means to care for themselves is that they depend upon someone else. Someone has to provide and if they do not receive this provision, then they themselves will die. We see an example of this actually later in Luke. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is going to give us a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He says, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in the purple and fine linen, joyously living in the splendor every day. And then there was a poor man, Tohas, a man named Lazarus, who laid his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. This was a man who was outside the gate, who was so poor that he, he dreamed that the rich man would bring out the scraps. You know what he's dreaming of? He's dreaming the rich man's servant would come and, and take the broom and the dustpan and, and dust up all of the crumbs out from under the table, right? And he would sweep them up, put them in the dustpan, take them outside, dump them out there, that he himself may dig through them and eat the crumbs. You know what we are told in the next verse of that parable? That Lazarus, the poor man, dies. Very likely he dies in this parable. The story of the fact is that he is an individual who cannot provide for himself. And so therefore he, he dies because he lacks. Because he's having to depend on someone else. Well, this type of poverty is not something that is typical amongst us. Yes, we, we know and we've experienced ourselves, uh, you know, not having, all, being in need at times. But there's very, very rare do we ourselves experience this or even see this type of poverty where today may be my last meal. Or where if I don't get something from somebody today, I, I'm not going to make it. But beloved, I would tell you this morning that we do see this type of spiritual poverty. We see a complete bankruptcy of righteousness, a complete lack of ability to provide for spiritual life, do you remember the woman at the well? 
who comes to get water, and Jesus tells us of the water that, that if you were to have this water, it will give you life everlasting and never thirst again. And what does she say? Give me the water. Tell me where I can get this water because I don't have this water. We, we see this type of bankruptcy, this type of, this type of poverty in the, of the soul and, the, and, and of our morality that, that, that we cannot save ourselves because there is nothing by which I can do to save. I need righteousness. And the price is too high. The, the price of my salvation, the price of life is a perfect righteousness before God. We say, well... Maybe I'm not as poor as I think I am, right? And that's what we do. We, we begin to make comparisons. I'm not as poor as that person because look how bad they are. And if they're that sinful and they're that bad, then maybe, maybe I'm not as bad. And so then you begin to go down through the Ten Commandments, right? And you begin to kind of walk through them. And maybe you say, well, uh, I have no other gods before me. Why? Well, I go to church, you know. I mean, that's not, I mean, you're not going to look into all the other idols that you have throughout your life and the things you give all your energy to and worship and time to. But, but you know, you may say, well, I at least go to church. Or you may say, well, I, I, I've never used the Lord's name in vain, but you would probably find if you would examine for just a moment, you have. Honor your father and mother. We say, well, probably did not do that. And say, well, I have not murdered anybody, but Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that if you've had anger and bitterness toward a brother or sister, then that is considered murder. And then we, we see the issue of lust. You say, well, I've never lusted, but or I've never committed adultery, but if you've lusted, then it's the same as adultery in the eyes of God. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize you're not as righteous as you think you are. But you still want to play the comparison game and go, but I, I, I'm richer than they are. Look how evil, look how wicked they are. But then James chapter 2 verse 10 really kind of gives us the gut punch. For he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one of them, who fails in one point, has become guilty of them all. And what we find, beloved, is that you and I are spiritually bankrupt before God. Because there is not one of us in here today who has perfect righteousness. But Christ is on a mission. And he tells us that he has come to, pro- to proclaim, to announce good news to the poor. What is the good news? The good news is, is that Christ has kept the law. For the entire 33 years of his life, he never broke the law of God in word or in deed or in thought. And that Christ is the only one amongst us who is rich in righteousness. He is the only one amongst us who is, who is overflowing with righteousness before God. And Christ willingly comes and he gives himself up as a righteous sacrifice. As we talked about this morning, one of the beauties of being part of the, 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 the family of God, the, the, the holy priesthood, is that we offer up spiritual sacrifices, not physical. That Christ was once and for all the, the righteous physical sacrifice on our behalf. And so, so this becomes the, the beauty of Matthew 5, 3, that the righteousness of Christ can be credited to me if I recognize my own poverty. For Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, beloved, those that recognize their poverty of spirit will find that the saving work of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah, that His righteousness on our behalf is good news. Beloved, He comes to save those who are not righteous. 
This is the mission of Christ. This is what He comes to Nazareth to let everyone know that He has come to purchase what you could not purchase. Salvation by perfect righteousness. That's not all. Continue on into the, into the next verse. He says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Now we first we see that we are spiritually poor, and, but now we, we find this word captive. <clears throat> it's a military term, meaning to, to be taken or to conquer. Again, uh, William Barclay gives us a, a picture here. It's a visual where the one who is poor is cringing in the corner with a begging for food or like Lazarus who's at the gate. This is an individual who is in chains. And so we picture a, a, a person who's in chains and he's at the end of a spear point and he's being led away to the dungeon or he's being led away to his judgment where he will be executed for his crimes. Now this could be, you could be placed in this Captive, this person can be placed in bondage by a greater power, by a greater nation. Or it could be, be, be that the person committed a crime and they've been found guilty and they're being led away to imprisonment until the day of their punishment, which would be the death penalty. Either way, what we find is, is that people here are prisoners of their own sins. What Christ is saying here, and that he has come on mission, is, is that we are a people who have been put in captivity and we are under the 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 sentence of judgment say corinthians 5 10 tells us for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in body whether good or evil and we know we can even go back to genesis chapter 3 where adam who was given the command that he is not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that that if he does that he will be under the judgment of death and so Adam who eats and we understand that he, he dies, you know, spiritually and then he will die physically. Beloved, is this not the story of us all? The scripture not tell us that we are a people in the bondage of sin. That we are a people that because of the holiness of God and the justice of God, that there is a, a punishment for sinners, that there, is a, that there is an eternal destination in which we must all enter into because we have, in our unbelief, rejected Christ. In our unbelief, we have lived our sinful lives. We have broken the laws of God. We've already established that we're completely poor, completely bankrupt when it comes to righteousness. So it's not like that you can even stand before the judge and say, Judge, I know that I committed this wrong, but look at all these good deeds I've got, right? That, that's not a good judge. Would the judge be good if, if, if a murderer goes before him and he says, Judge, I know that I've murdered this one time. Don't, don't send me to the death penalty. Look at all of the good. And the judge would look and go, you know what? I, I've reviewed all your good deeds. I, I've reviewed the situation. And so we're going to let you go. And we're going to give you a second chance. It would not be a good judge. The scripture is very clear that God is a perfect judge. And God is a, a good judge, a righteous judge, a holy judge. And because of our sin, because of the deeds that we have done, that you and I must stand before this judge as captives in the bondage of our own sin, awaiting the penalty of death. But notice what he says. 
that he has come to proclaim release. The Greek word for release means to pardon. It means to cancel a debt. It describes the the act of setting the individual free from the penalty of death. The penalty has been paid. A ransom has been given. And because this ransom has been paid, your chains, your bondage is removed and you are now declared completely justified Matter of fact, because our ransom was so great and because someone took our penalty, we are not just forgiven of our sins, dear friends. We are declared innocent and justified of all wrongdoing. It is the life and the death of Jesus Christ that pays the ransom for us all. That in his perfect righteousness, he who, who was perfect in the law and keeping the law in full obedience, that he comes and he offers himself as our payment. Instead, it's not that he just pays money and walks away with us, but that he himself comes and the chains of our own sin is placed upon him and the penalty that we that was due us is given to him on the hill of Calvary. Dear friends, may I ask you this morning, are you in need of being set free from this? Do, do you look at this and do you see that, that we ourselves are a people who are under judgment and we are in need of a ransom, we are in need of this good news? And here's the beauty of this. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 through tells us that Christ is not only the one who, who gives us the good news, He is the one who pays the ransom for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man that the man Christ Jesus gave Himself as a ransom. Or do, you, do you see this this morning and you see your sin and you see in your unbelief that you are a person who needs to be set free free from this judgment what hope do you have what hope do any of us have our only hope is in the mission of the messiah that christ comes and proclaims and pays the ransom for all of us the mission of christ is to set people free from the punishment of sin and death through His death and His resurrection. He comes to make us rich. He comes to set us free. But notice the third one. It says that in recovery of the sight of the blind. What's so amazing of this is that we know the power of Christ to heal physically and spiritually. There were many blind in Israel. We, we, we read of the stories over and over of those who could not see and, and Christ who brings to them the gift of, of, of sight. But as we stated earlier, He did not heal them all. And so we know that this is talking about spiritual sight of those who live in darkness. The sinner is, is not only spiritually bankrupt, he's not only a captive under the judgment of sin, but he or she lives in darkness. You say, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to be spiritually blind? Let me share a few verses with you, and I think this will help you. And I think it will not only help you understand what we mean, but I think it will give you insight, insight into the reason what, what we're seeing around us. In John chapter 1, verse 5, listen to this. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend, does not understand. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, says, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So, John 1, 5, we do not comprehend, but 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we do not have knowledge until He gives it to us, until we can see. Psalm, Psalms 82, verse 5, 
They do not know, nor do they understand, for they walk in darkness. Well, if spiritual blindness means that a person does not see, they do not comprehend, they do not accept the things of God, and they walk in immorality and sin. Now, you're a person this morning who cannot understand the Word of God. And I don't mean that you're just a person who has a hard time in studying and, and the deeper things of God. Or are you a person who the whole gospel just does not make sense? Have you ever just shared the gospel with someone or ever been talking with someone and, and, and they, it makes absolutely no sense to them? It is fairy tale. It is foolishness. It is foolish, stumbling block to the Jews, foolish to the Gentiles that Christ would come. He would leave heaven and die. It, they cannot wrap their mind around this. They do not see it. They're spiritually blind. Well, what about those who do not believe God exists? How many of you have been in those debates with people about the existence of God and you and your, you thought, if I could just, if I could just get all the scientific facts and I could get all, I'm going to go to Google and I'm going to get all the apologetics and I'm going to get all these things and I'm going to go and be ready and I'm going to talk to this individual and I'm going to prove to them God exists. And you do that, you, you show them all the facts, you, get, you, 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 you argue and you defend your, you know, your, your, your purpose, your, your statement, your, your belief, you defend it well and you rebuke there and you're just like, I know now they're going to believe, they're, they're going to believe in God. And they just don't. Or a person who may believe in many gods in many different ways into heaven and not just one. They accept all kinds of mystical and pagan rituals and beliefs. Or what about this one? A person who lives in immorality and sees nothing wrong with it. You, you wonder why people are so... Why is it okay for a man to become a woman and a woman to become a man? You, you cannot fathom in your mind why they think this is okay. You cannot fathom in your mind the, 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 the decisions of the, of the government, of why they do what they do. And you argue with your television and you scream at your television and you, and you say, they're, they're just not educated enough. Beloved, it's because they're spiritually blind. But before you point at the television and before you point at the grave sins, don't forget there are those of us even here probably today, you're living in sin and you think it's okay. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you lust, you have anger. We, we miss church, we don't even come to church and we're like, it's okay. Who is to judge me? I, I don't have to be with the faith family. I, I, I don't have to believe this. I don't have to do this. And it's okay for me to live this way. And you see nothing wrong with it. And you're really blown away when people begin to hold you accountable for this. Love is spiritual blindness. And here's the sad fact. Is that when we read throughout the New Testament, what we find is, is that the religious people were more living, they were living in darkness more than others. They were blinded by their own false righteousness and their religious deeds. And we're going to see this even more next week of the people who, who they cannot understand how Christ would say that they, need, that they are in their sins and need to be saved. 
And if this is not bad enough, then what causes this spiritual blindness? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Spiritual blindness is a work of Satan as a result of your unbelief. And notice that he even says at the very beginning that these are individuals who are perishing in their sin. Beloved, are you one who is spiritually blind this morning? Is God convicting you as the Spirit, revealing to you this morning that you are an individual who has been walking in darkness, believing that you are good before God, when in fact you are as sinful as everyone else? What hope do you have that you may gain spiritual sight? You have the mission of the Messiah. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, he says to us, he says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Beloved, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can open one's heart to see. Only Christ, who is the light of the world, only Christ, who we talked about this morning, the living stone that we build our lives on, can give us the spiritual sight to not only understand who God is, not only to be able to believe in God. You can't even believe in God until, until you have this living stone. You can't even believe in God until you have this gospel of light that comes into you, that gives you this belief, that gives you this faith, that reveals to you the majesty and the magnificence and the excellencies of God. Those who in our world who are blind to their sins and their immorality, what hope do they have? They have a Messiah. They have Christ. They have the gospel that we proclaim. Who through the preaching of the gospel, through the, through the prioritizing of the gospel that we proclaim to the world, that he can open their hearts, open their minds, that they may understand God and believe that he is real. Place their faith in him and live righteously before him. The mission of the Messiah is to give sight to the spiritually blind because he is the light of the world that pushes out the darkness. But there is a fourth thing that I want you to see this morning. Notice that the metaphor of oppression. Now this is a word that, that we hear a lot, people who are oppressed, so, so, so bear with me here. He says to set free those who are oppressed. This, this, Isaiah, this comes actually from Isaiah 58, 6. And I find it interesting that Jesus brings this into the text. But the Greek word for oppression, or, the, the, or the, word, the Greek word for set free and release is the same as it was for captivity. But it is not the same word that is used for captivity. This is not about people being put into subjection. This is not about people oppressing people with their thumb. This is not about rich, powerful people oppressing the poor. That's not what this is. Instead, this word refers to somebody who is overwhelmed with the pain of life. The Greek word means literally to shatter or to break into pieces. As though a, a, a jar, a, potter, a pottery would, would fall from your hands and hit the pavement and shatter. It means, to, it means to convey the idea of a person whose life has been shattered by some event 
something has taken place or maybe a bunch of things have taken place and have just over time have just chipped away at you and you are living a life a full discouragement, full just depression This speaks of a person who's broken because of the circumstances of life. Dear friends, do you suffer from this? And there, or, or do you know those who suffer from this? Or do you know those who, who question God, who, who even wonder if God is real and that He exists, or whose, whose faith is, it seems like it's just kind of teetering on the edge. Maybe your joy has been shattered by sickness and bad health. Cancer comes into your life. Maybe you know those. Cancer has come into life. Bad health comes into your life. And all of a sudden, we just no longer believe God because we believe that God would never allow such a thing for us. You, you lose a loved one, you lose a wife, you lose a husband, you lose a, a, a child, you lose a friend. You, you, you've lost a loved one in your life and, and your life is shattered for this. And there's no joy, there's no peace, there's nothing. Life is meaningless. You lose a job, you lose your financial stability. Maybe you're suffering from a lack of purpose. There's just You, you, you get older and kids move out of the house. And you wonder, what am I doing with my life? And what happens is, is we tend to go to medicine and we tend to, we tend to try new things and, and you know, exercise and we try to make more money and we try to find you know, hobbies and maybe some of us may go into find different pleasures and all of these things thinking, this will bring joy, this will bring life to me. And what we find is, is it leads us nowhere. And so we look at life and we see that there's no purpose, there's no joy there is no God. We're very much in Ecclesiastes. Everything's vanity. All is vanity. Here's the good news of the Messiah. Here's the mission of Christ. He comes to proclaim to us that we, are, that we can be free. He comes to set us free from this. The one who can release us from the pain and brokenness of life is Christ himself. Notice that I did not say that he, can, that he would release you from the circumstances. I said he would release you from the pain and the results of the circumstances, but it doesn't mean he's always going to release you from the circumstances. You may still have to deal with cancer. You may still have to deal with the fact that we've lost a loved one. You may still have to deal with the fact that you've lost all your money. You may have to deal with some really bad circumstances in your life, but Christ comes to set you free from the results of that and bring life and joy to you. Matthew 11, verse 28 30, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Beloved, Christ comes to give rest in the midst of the worst circumstances of life. When all seems meaningless and all seems in vain, in vain and, and everything seems to be shattered, Christ comes to bring to you rest and hope in the kingdom. How? How did he do this? How does he fulfill this mission? Because he who was perfect and righteous in every way was crushed for our iniquities. The worst of circumstances of this life fell upon his shoulders and he was bruised and he was crushed and he was downtrodden. He was beaten down. 
that you may find rest and hope in him. Not because that Christ removes the circumstances, but because Christ overcomes the circumstances. And he brings you hope and he brings you life through him. He brings you a rest where no cancer and no death and no depression and no strife and no brokenness and no loss of a loved one can ever steal from you. And not only that, he comes and he preaches a kingdom where none of these things will will be there. Beloved, if you are one who is feeling the effects of brokenness and you are one who has, there is no hope and there is no belief in God because of all that has happened in your life, one bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing and there cannot be a God, Christ comes today and he is on mission to show you that he brings rest and hope through his saving work on the cross of Calvary. We see poverty, we see captivity, we see blindness, and we see oppression. But I want you to see this in closing. Look at verse 19. Notice what he says. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Isaiah's language here echoes the description of the year of jubilation. This is every 50 years they would, they would release every one of their debts and all the slaves would be set free. And, and if you had any debts, if you lost your property, it would be given back to you. It was, a, it was a year of rejoicing. You were set free. And Jesus uses this in this last sentence as a picture of the mission that he's there. He has come to proclaim salvation. All four metaphors are summed in this. Christ has come to save. Whether it is poverty or whether it's captivity or whether it's blindness or oppression. He comes to bring salvation and jubilation and joy to you. But here's the interesting part of this. He didn't finish the verse. He doesn't finish it here. He actually leaves a part out. Let me give you the verse in in, in its fullness here. He says, Isaiah says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of God. I come to you today, Nazareth, to bring you good news of salvation that if you are in any of these categories in which we're all in one of them, if you are not trusting in God and you, are, you have no faith and you are in your sins and you are about to be judged, he says, I come to bring to you salvation and jubilation. That's his mission. That's what he came to do. But why did he stop there? Because that time has not come yet. You see, Jesus left that part out because his first coming was about salvation, not about judgment But dear friends, you must know that when he returns, there will be no more salvation. When Christ returns, it will be a day of vengeance and not jubilation. When he returns, the spiritually poor, the spiritual captives, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed, all those who are in their sins and unbelief will come under the judgment and vengeance of God And be cast into hell for eternity. This is coming. This day is coming. And it is sooner today than it was yesterday, dear friends. And we must believe the word of God of knowing that it's coming. And and that we must understand that there will be no second chances. That the day is the day of salvation. But here is the good news, dear friends. 
Jesus does not read this part just yet. And so therefore that means that the mission of Jesus is still presently at work today. It means today in this very moment, in this present hour, in this present second, this present minute, there is hope for the poor, there is hope for the captive, there is hope for the blind, there is hope for the oppressed, there is hope for you who has been living in the sin of adultery, and there is hope for you who has been lying, living in the sin of, uh, of lying, there is hope for you who has been living in, uh, in your unbelief, there is hope for you who have been spiritually blind and, and using your religious deeds and your religious works to make everyone else believe that everything's okay. There is hope for you today that you can be saved and that you can know the joy of jubilation in Christ because Christ came and He died for you and He's still on mission today. His work that He did then of dying and rising to the grave is still powerful and still at work today and we are calling people to salvation. We are calling people to be saved. You say, how? By repenting of your sins and believing upon Christ. Believing that Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave. And there is no way, there is no hope other than Christ. There are not many ways. There is only one way in Christ. And you repenting of your sins. You confessing your sins to God and and even to others. And you repenting and turning away. No longer living in those sins, but living according to the righteousness of Christ. This is the work of Christ. This is the mission then in Nazareth, and it is the mission here in Jonesboro. And so therefore, not only is he presently at work calling us into salvation today, dear friends, we must also know that, he is, that the church has taken on this mission. And so the very mission of proclaiming the good news to those in spiritual poverty and spiritually captive and under judgment, those who are spiritually blind, those people who do the bad things and they don't even know why you're upset about it, yes, you've been given the mission to go to them and proclaim this gospel. And those people who are oppressed and find no hope in this life, the very mission of Christ is at work today for you and it is the mission of the church that we proclaim And so therefore, brothers and sisters, beloved, what hope do you have and what hope does this world have? A Messiah. Jesus Christ. If you would, bow with me for just a moment in prayer.